Amen. Good morning, church. Uh, it's so good to be here with you. I'd like to welcome you to Fellowship Greenville. My name is Matt Dinsky. I serve here at Fellowship Greenville as one of the pastors. Uh, thanks so much for being, I heard a little woo somewhere. Thank you, Brooke. Yes, yes, my one and only cheerleader in this place. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to welcome you this morning. Odd one, welcome. Odd two, welcome. Those watching online, welcome. If it's your first time here or first time in a while, thanks so much for joining us and worshiping with us this morning at Fellowship. Uh, typically, as we gather together on Sunday mornings, we are going through entire books of the Bible at a time, verse by verse, passage by passage. And if you have never been here before, or if it's been a while, we have been in the book of Ephesians. And I have been given um, the task, and I, and I must confess to you guys, I, a very intimidating task, to close out the book of Ephesians this morning. Chapter six, verse 10. Uh, and I say it's intimidating because this particular passage, I would be willing to bet most people gathered here this morning, most people watching online have heard a sermon about this passage before. This is the, the famous armor of God passage uh, that Paul talks about. It is arguably one of the most famous passages in the book of Ephesians, perhaps even the New Testament, one of the most familiar passages. And typically when we approach things with familiarity, uh, we kind of become unteachable in some ways. And so it's, it's challenging uh, for a preacher to come to a passage knowing many of us have heard this before, uh, and, and, and trying to present it in a way that um, illumines our hearts and allows the Spirit to work in, in maybe new ways or different ways than He has before on us. Um, it's, it's also an intimidating passage just because of the language itself. It's a very, like, you know, militaristic language, and I think sometimes Christians have traditionally gotten this passage wrong. I'm going to get into that here in a minute, but I'm, I'm coming to you this morning humbly as a teacher asking the Lord to prepare our hearts, mine included, to receive from his word, even if it's a familiar passage, what he has for us this morning. A um, couple of weeks ago, before Thanksgiving, <clears throat> I was uh, on a camping trip, a backpacking trip with a dear friend of mine, and we went up uh, into North Carolina, we were camping together, and it's a week before Thanksgiving, so, you know, like the lows are get, getting down into the low 20s or high teens, and so comfort campers are all gone, which is great. And so anybody who's staying the night is pretty much there because they love it, right? Like they're just willing to suffer and freeze all night. Um, and so at nighttime, the parking lot would pretty much empty out, and there was just no one really in our general area. That's how it felt anyway. Well, one day we decide, hey, how about tonight? Why don't we hike that mountain, and let's time it so that we get up there around sunset and just enjoy the, the panorama views and the sunset and, and then hike down at night. Uh, the, the moon was full, it was uh, so bright, you didn't even need flashlights, and so that was our plan, we, and we did it, we went up, and the sky was beautiful, it was painted red and purple and orange and yellow and pinks and blues and all sorts of things. It was just wonderful, it was really beautiful to enjoy uh, you know, the company of my friend and, and God's creation while we're up there, uh, and then we waited till nightfall and we started hiking down. And the trail that we were on kind of wraps around this, this side of the mountain and then faces this huge valley. And, and I know this area in my head, <clears throat> wow, excuse me, I'm getting emotional about my story. In my head, I know <clears throat> all the trails that run throughout this area, but of course it's dark, it's, it's nighttime, I can't see any of them. But all of a sudden as we're hiking, I see off in the distance, miles away, this little speck of orange 
and it's unmistakable. It's the glow of a campfire. And I don't know why, but it kind of stopped me in my tracks, literally. And I stood there and I saw this campfire and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. Because if we were down at our campsite right now, I would swear we were the only ones in the area. But, but from here, I can see that there's people camping right there. Now to get there, it would have been hours of hiking. And yet from up top, it was just easy to spot. I called my friend over. I was like, dude, man, isn't this awesome? Like, it just made me feel so connected, the camaraderie existing between us and these other campers. And then we just stood there for a while looking in the darkness of the valley. And sure enough, we started to spot headlamps and other fires and, and seeing all these different um, people in the area. And it made us feel connected. Whereas before, we just kind of had a limited view uh, when we were th thinking about it from our own campsite. Now, why do I share that story with you this morning? I share it because this passage that I want to talk about, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, is about what we traditionally call spiritual warfare. The idea that there is a spiritual reality to this world beyond the material. That there is a realm that exists that goes beyond the realm we can see. We live and function within the earthly realm, the material realm, but the worldview of Paul and the worldview of Jesus, for that matter, function in a way that believed that there was another realm at play. We can't see it, but we can feel the effects of it. We can't put a finger on anything specific, but, but we, can see, uh, we can see the byproduct of that realm at work. And so what I'd love to do this morning is I'd love to start at camp with you, sitting around our fire together, reading the passage. And then I'd love to go on a hike with you. I'd love to get to the top of the mountain, and I'd love for us to see, as we zoom out of our passage, zoom out of our passage, zoom out of Ephesians, zoom out of the New Testament, and look at the Bible as a whole, I would love for us to stand there together from the bird's eye view and see how what Paul is talking about here may seem a little strange, but there's actually places all over the Bible that are talking about this. And there's a sense of connectivity going on in the scriptures. And so I want to stand up there with you and be able to identify those things. And then we'll hike back down the mountain. We'll come back to camp and we'll focus on our passage again. Does that sound good? You, you with me? Amen. All right, here we go. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of God for the people of God. So Paul has a couple of convictions here. In fact, the Bible itself has some uh, suggestions. It is asking us to believe in as we approach this passage. 
One thing the Bible is suggesting to us through Paul's words here is that there is a realm that exists, a spiritual realm that exists, and it entails darkness, it entails evil, it entails um, cosmic powers that are grasping for control, and their agenda seems to be against that of God the Father. And Paul is trying to bring this idea about, and the scriptures themselves would suggest to us that this happens on a personal level, that there are evil forces in this world that you cannot see, but they are trying to exploit the weakness of human beings and corrupt our character away from God. It happens on a personal level. The second thing that the scripture suggests is that it happens on a corporate level, that there are evil forces operating within this world in a realm that we cannot see, but definitely have an impact on us. That happens on a corporate level, that evil, uh, darkness, the cosmic powers are trying to leverage our vulnerabilities and weakness to exploit them for the purpose of destruction and destroying relationships and moving us ever further from the truth and the light and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is like a strange thought to you or kind of a new thought to you. I get that. I, I think in our American context and typical ways that we approach the scriptures, I, I think um, the typical Western mind is very comfortable with material. Like what we see and our faith is all about, you know, us holding a tangible Bible and us going to a physical place and sitting with real people and anything beyond that, anything like invisible, spiritual, demonic, or anything like that seems to be in a category in our minds of fiction or like, no, that's Hollywood. That's not, that doesn't like really happen. And yet somehow we also understand that, well, there does seem to be some spiritual stuff like heaven and, and where do we go when we die? And there does seem to be an afterlife and that's not on this earth. And so I guess there is something. And so we tend to have this weird kind of blend of thoughts about it. Jesus and Paul both had a worldview that operated by and understood there is a realm other than our realm. And there are forces at play that we cannot see. Jesus himself, part of his earthly ministry, was to show his authority over the supernatural by removing demons from people, by speaking with authority. He even had conversations with the devil himself in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. Jesus was very aware there's a realm that exists. Paul's very aware there's a realm that exists. So let's leave our campsite. Let's go on a hike together. Let's get to the top of the mountain, zoom out from this passage, and look at kind of the, the general biblical narrative as a whole, the meta-narrative. There are many stories that run through the scriptures, but one of those, one of the consistent threads throughout the scripture is this idea of these realms um, with, within our reality. So let's zoom out, all right? In the book of Genesis, let's go all the way to the beginning. In the book of Genesis, you see God begin to create. God desires to share himself with his children the most loving thing a being like God could do would be to share himself, and so he creates people. Now, <clears throat> the scriptures are very, very clear on the storyline of humanity, our creation, and eventually our rebellion against God. The scriptures are not as clear on the, on the creation of things in the spiritual realm. And so you read through the Old Testament, and the story of humanity is pretty 
you know, in order and clear. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there it is. But when it comes to things like angels and celestial beings and their roles within the world, it seems like here and there through the Old Testament, it seems like God has given them authority to help govern and guide humanity. In other places, they seem to be messengers or warriors. It seems like one of their purposes was to uphold justice uh, and guide people towards holiness. And, and so it's, it's kind of like, it's not as clear when it comes to the spiritual realm. There's no timeline. It's not you know, nice and tucked into some chronology. So you kind of have to piece together through the Old Testament what's going on. So what we know is that God began to create. And as he created, he created in the spiritual realm, these celestial beings. We may know them as angels, the angels who rebelled against God. Our language for them is demons. They were led by one chief figure, one supreme evil one. He is known as the adversary, the deceiver, Satan, the devil. And so at some point, there was a rebellion. We don't know exactly when. It seems like there might have been even multiple rebellions, but at some point there was a rebellion. Now, all of that is kind of going on in the Old Testament. And then we have this story in the book of Genesis where God is creating and he's creating humanity and he's creating the earth and he's sharing himself and it's good and he's living among his people. And so God in the beginning creates heaven on earth. All right, this is, this is the world here, okay? If, if you're a CrossFitter, don't be distracted by the dip rings, okay? Just stay with me. Your workouts can come later, all right? This is the world, this is earth, the realm in which God was creating in the book of Genesis. And within this realm, he is sharing himself. This was literally heaven on earth. So when we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, we kind of think like, oh, they were in a garden. It probably looks like a lot of nice gardens here, maybe the Biltmore Gardens or something like that. No, the realms were fully overlapped in the beginning. God created heaven on earth. We were in perfect harmony with God. Our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with creation, the four categories of relationships were all in perfect harmony. God created heaven on, on earth, desired to share himself with his people, walked, literally walked with Adam and Eve in this perfect world that he has made, in this good world that he has made. It was heaven on earth. And so Adam and Eve would be able to look into the skies and see the spiritual realm. There was an overlap. It, it, it was normal for them, not so with us. And you guys know the story, right? Genesis 3 comes along, and we kind of find this bizarre story in the Bible. And I say it's bizarre because in Genesis 3, you have Adam and Eve living in this garden, and then all of a sudden this talking snake slithers his way into the story and strikes up a conversation with Eve. There's not too many talking animals in the Bible. There are a few. This is one. It's, it's weird. It's strange. He's not named in that passage. We know him to be the devil, but he's not named. And so at, at Genesis 3, face value, you've got a talking snake in this garden. And he comes along and he tells Eve, why don't you eat of that tree? Now, most of us in here probably know God created this perfect uh, harmony in this world with Adam and Eve, but he gave them one rule. The rule was, I put this tree here. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The one thing I'm asking you to do, Adam and Eve, is not eat of that tree. Now, guys in the room, I'd be willing to bet if I told you, hey, I will fill your refrigerator full of whatever you want every single day. You want ribs? You got ribs. You, you, want, you want steak? You got steak. You want what? I don't know. What do guys eat? I, I don't know. I eat like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all the time. I'm on that three kid budget, all right? But if I told you, I, I'll fill your fridge with whatever you want, 
But, 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 I'm gonna put this huge, nice chunk of cheese right in the middle and you're never allowed to eat that, all right? You can eat other cheeses, but not this. I'd be willing to bet, guys, most of us would say, well, if the fate of humanity depends on it, I'll withhold from the cheese, right? Practice some restraint. And so we look at Adam and Eve and we're like, man, one tree, one tree, you couldn't, you couldn't withstand, you couldn't have discipline for one tree? You had to go and blow it for all of us? But it's more than just the tree. The tree is literal, but it also represents something. The tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God didn't just put the tree there to see if Adam and Eve could withstand temptation. The tree represented this. Adam and Eve, will you trust God to define for you what good and evil is in this life? Or will you reach out for yourselves, seeking autonomy, seeking individuality, fueled by pride, will you grab at that knowledge and try to define good and evil yourselves? That's what the tree really represented. And Adam and Eve were deceived and they, were, and they reached out for the tree thinking that they could define good and evil for themselves. And truthfully, at a very simple bottom line view, this is still humanity's ordeal between them and God. We are still reaching out and trying to define good and evil for ourselves rather than submitting to the Father and trusting God's word for what good and evil is in this world, right? And so God creates heaven on earth. A rebellion in the spiritual realm was happening. That rebellion eventually leaked into the Garden of Eden and this talking snake comes along and tempts Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve buy in and they joined the rebellion. Now humanity is in the rebellion and the realms that God created, heaven on earth at that moment in time becomes heaven and earth. The realms were severed due to the rebellion by humanity. And God, being rich in mercy and grace and still desiring to share himself with his people, created ways for us to experience him even though the realms were separate. The earthly realm and the heavenly realm were no longer overlapping in perfect harmony, but now we're severed because of sin. And yet God is still making ways for us to experience him. And so the rest of the Old Testament is really a timeline of how God is doing that. And at times the realms would come so close they would almost touch, but they were never overlapping again. And so God shared himself and continued to seek us and pursue us and create ways for us to experience his presence by creating relationships with us. And so he strikes up a relationship with a guy named Abraham and he makes a covenant with him. And then that continues on to his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Joseph who eventually finds himself in Egypt and the Hebrew population is growing. And then they find themselves enslaved by Pharaoh and God raises up a man named Moses and his brother Aaron to deliver them and lead them out of slavery and into the promised land. And wouldn't you know it, humanity joined the rebellion yet again. But eventually they reach the promised land and God begins to structure their, their lives. He, he gives them a law to live by, a code of living that reveal his love and his heart for his people and instructs them to be a light to the nations, to redeem the, the nations surrounding them. And he instructs them how to build a tabernacle, tabernacle where his presence would dwell and they could come and engage his presence. All of these things helping us touch the presence of God, interact with the presence of God. But the realms were not overlapped. And eventually Israel began to rebel even more and then cry out for help and God would deliver them by raising up 
what the scriptures called judges and would deliver pockets of Israel. And then they would rebel again. And eventually they were like, we don't want judges anymore. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And so God allows them to do that. First king of Israel was named Saul. Great start, terrible finish. Then comes David and his son Solomon. David wrote a bunch of Psalms. Solomon wrote, wrote a bunch of the uh, Proverbs, the wisdom writing. All of these things helping us experience the presence of God. And then all through the Old Testament, God raises up men and women who foretell and foretell the word of God. They're known as prophets. And they are declaring the will of God, helping people understand how to repent and, and be made right with God again. To heal the rebellion that we've joined. All of these things helping us to experience the presence of God, but the realms were never overlapped. And then the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, ends. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise, this underlying promise. It's repeated again and again. One day, one who is coming. One day, one will come. One day, the chosen one will come. One day, the Messiah will come. One day, one will come who will make this right. And the book of Malachi ends in the Old Testament, and there is 400 years of silence. And it's like, God, have you, have you forgotten us? Have you forgotten your promise to make it right? 400 years of silence. And that silence was broken in the middle of the night by a crying baby being held by a teenage mom learning what motherhood is for the very first time. And he was named Emmanuel, God with us. Of all the ways God could have come into this earth, he chose one of the most sub subversive pathways imaginable to, to come as an infant and submit himself to humans, to be raised by the very rebels who created the mess in the first place. And Jesus, as he grew up, began to teach. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the first thing Jesus declared in his public ministry, he said, behold, the kingdom of God or the realm of God, the realm of the heavens is at hand. It is so close you can reach out and touch it. All throughout the Old Testament, they never overlapped. And Jesus comes onto the scene, inaugurating the kingdom, bringing the kingdom. And for the first time since the Garden of Eden, the realms overlapped again. Jesus says, I've brought the kingdom of God. It is at hand. And so the earthly realm, the one we live in, is marked by some key words, pain and sin and death and flesh. But the heavenly realm, the kingdom of God, is marked by joy and spirit and life and victory. And Jesus says, I've brought the kingdom and you and I today live in this middle area. This is what the biblical authors, especially the New Testament authors, call these last days. We live right here. This was Jesus' first coming. This will be his second coming when he will fully abolish evil once and for all. But it's not there yet. And so we live in this strange overlap. This is, the, this is what the Bible talks about on a big picture view, we live in this weird overlap. Haven't you ever experienced something in this life and you could swear, oh, I just tasted heaven. Like there was something about that moment. 
with my family or I, I, I was somewhere outside, I experienced God in a way, I had such a peace about me, I, it felt like I tasted heaven. Or haven't you ever had victory over sin and you're walking in righteousness and you can, you can sense the spirit working in you and bringing life and restoration and you can swear this is heaven, this is what it's like. And yet simultaneously, haven't you ever felt completely defeated and overrun by sin and desires to sin and temptations to sin? And you find yourself a wreck and you're carrying conviction and guilt and you're so tired of committing that same sin and you look around the world and you're like, where is God? Evil is running rampant. It is because the realms are overlapped. This is called the already but not yet kingdom of God. It is already here but not yet fully here. We still live in the effects of this broken world and yet we've been introduced to the realities of the kingdom of God. Both and simultaneously. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is literally instructing us, pray that the realities of earth would be the realities of heaven, that this would continue to advance in this life. And what the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation is that one day Jesus will make all things new and all new things and create a new heaven and a new earth and the realms will be fully overlapped once again and we will be with God forever with the absence of evil and the absence of pain forevermore, amen. amen. And we wait, we wait eagerly, but right now we are here and this is the framework that Paul is thinking about as he writes Ephesians that the dark powers who have rebelled against God in the spiritual realm, this realm we cannot see, the dark powers have hijacked humanity. They are working behind the scenes. Their goal is to destroy. Jesus says the enemy's agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy. Their goal is to corrupt and corrode and exploit human weakness and get us to join the rebellion. If they could not defeat God, they want to defeat his children. There is a whole world operating behind the scenes of spiritual forces. And that is what Paul is right. It's framing his theology in this passage. That's the big picture view. You with me? All right. Let's come off the mountain. Let's go back to camp. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Paul wants us to know if we are going to engage in a spiritual battle. It is not our strength. To fight a spiritual battle, you need spiritual weapons, you need spiritual armor. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, not our strength. It's the strength of Jesus and what God has accomplished in this world through Jesus that will enable us victory in this life. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. What are the schemes of the devil? Well, there's many. Paul actually lists one, or the effect of one, already in this book. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In Paul's mind, one of the schemes of the devil is to exploit strained relationships among believers allowing bitterness to grow further to create division among the body of Jesus. Paul seems to think that a lot of spiritual warfare is actually about dividing the unity that exists among the body. What are the other schemes? This, this, this word schemes, it's, 
It's the Greek word methodios. It's actually where we get our English word method, the methods of the devil. Well, I want us to know the devil, he is not a creator. He is a corrupter. He comes up with nothing new. He corrupts what is good and leverages it for his own agenda, but he is not God. He is not as powerful as God. He is already a defeated foe, though not yet destroyed. Jesus nailed to the cross and the tomb empty delivered the final death blow to evil. And Jesus put death to death once and for all. He is limping along in his last days. He's not yet destroyed, but he is defeated. But he's also not coming up with anything new. He's not a creator. He's a corrupter. His schemes are still what they were in the garden all those years ago. He comes up to Eve as a serpent and he asks her this question. Did God really say not to eat of that tree? The first thing the devil does in his schemes is get us to question God's word. Did God really say that? Like, did he really say that? Is that really in the Bible? And if it is, does he really care about it that much? Like, man, that's kind of antiquated. It's outdated. It's not relevant. Surely that can't apply to us today. Humanity is notorious for suffering from what's known as chronological snobbery. Just because our generation is the latest generation must mean we know more than all the other generations. It's not true. God's word is timeless. It applies to us today as it always has. It will never be out of date. The devil comes in the garden. Did God really say don't eat of the tree? That's temptation number one, question God's word. Eve says, yeah, he, he said that. He said don't eat of that tree or we'll die. The devil says, you won't die. He's not gonna do that. Question God's words, second temptation, second scheme, second method is counterfeit God's authority. God will not do what he said he will do. He won't do it. He won't do what he said he'll do. He won't operate that way. You don't need to worry about it. Counterfeit God's authority. And then the third scheme, the third method, he tells Eve, you know why he doesn't want you to eat of that tree. It's because if you eat of this tree, then you can be like God, knowing good from evil. Question God's word, counterfeit God's authority. The third scheme is to conquer God's supremacy. You can be like God. You don't need God. If you do this, you won't need him. You can be in control of your own life, master of your fate, captain of your soul. You don't need God. Those are the three schemes. Question God's word, counterfeit God's authority, conquer God's supremacy. He's doing those same exact things today among individuals and cultures and countries. And you can see that unfolding, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, this phrase here, cosmic powers, is a, is a combination of two Greek words. It literally means world grabbers. Paul is hammering this idea that there are evil spirits. There, there is a presence of evil in this world and their agenda is to grab the world, to hijack the world, to take it away from God the Father, to corrupt us, to manipulate us behind the scenes, to pull the strings that lead us into dismay that prevent human flourishing, that prevent us from experiencing God. They're world grabbers. It's, it's the same idea, Adam and Eve are fruit grabbers. 
They grabbed at something that wasn't theirs to grab. These spirits are world grabbers. It's not theirs to grab. This, is, this language is in direct contrast to Jesus himself. Paul writes, same author, different book, Philippians chapter two, starting in verse three, he says, or five, he says, have this mindset among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or in other words, taken, seized, reached out for. Jesus was the only one ever entitled to reach out for authority, and yet he submitted himself to the Father, trusting the Father, humbled himself to the point of a servant, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every other name. The dark cosmic powers are world grabbers. They are set on taking this world away from God's plans. Paul says, your battle is not against flesh and blood. This is kind of an audacious thing to say. I mean, think about the context of the, to the people of, of whom he's writing. There's persecution going on. Christians are being persecuted for their faith. Some are even losing their lives for their faith. And Paul is saying, yeah, your battle's not against flesh and blood. And it's like, Paul, like Rome is murdering us. They're headhunting us. They're seeking us out. They're trying to snuff out Christianity. And Paul's like, yeah, your battle's not against people. It's against the systems behind the people. It's against the darkness of this world that is manipulating the people. The darkness that's manipulating governments and systems. And what Paul's saying is, listen, your true enemy is not anyone in the flesh. And if you're in this room today and you're like, no, but it is, because there's some people I don't like. Paul's saying, no, that's not your enemy. Your enemy is evil, is darkness. Like Paul's whole point here is broken and strained relationships are not your enemy. In fact, unity in the body of Jesus is what we should strive for. And it kind of begs the question, are there any relationships in your life that are broken and you've allowed them to remain broken because you've convinced yourself that my enemy is flesh and blood? Like, did your boss say something to you recently or did a coworker say something to you recently or did a friend betray you recently? Has anyone had a, a sour experience with family recently. Thanksgiving was like two weeks ago. I, surely there's some people in here that str struggle with family and in-laws. Not mine. Mine are great. They're wonderful. I think they're watching. I love you. But, but I've heard, I've heard other families struggle with this. Paul is saying your enemy is not people. It, you, there is a bigger picture. There is something going on that you cannot see, but you feel the effects of. And it's so easy to then isolate. My enemy is that person. It's, Paul says, no. And so we must strive for unity to repair broken relationships and to understand that our enemy is not people. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God and you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm Paul gives us this idea. There is a cosmic realm at play. There are world grabbers behind the scenes. So here's a couple of things. Sometimes we get this passage really, really wrong. It's one of the reasons I was intimidated to preach about this passage this morning. We get this passage wrong when we see these verses as some rally cry for Christians to gather together to militarize our mindset 
and kind of in a frenzy and a mob begin to identify all the sources of evil in this world and wage war on them. That is not what Paul is teaching here. This passage has been manipulated and leveraged and maligned and taught that way. And horrific things have happened in the name of Jesus when we've adopted a military mindset that says it's our job to snuff out evil. It is not. Paul uses language in this passage four times. He says, stand. This passage is all about resisting evil, resisting evil. Never once does Paul use the language about advancing against evil. We are not the ultimate divine warrior. Jesus is. And Jesus's method of battle is not like what we would think. It is subversive and submissive. In the kingdom of God, the image of victory is our God nailed to the cross and the tomb of God empty. The image of victory and power is not a sword, it's a cross. And for Christians to adopt a militaristic mindset because, oh, look here, evil's at hand, we need to rally and get it, it is not Paul's intent. Jesus at any time could have pointed at Caesar, could have pointed at Rome, could have pointed at any specifics, he never did. Jesus instead went after the systems of evil. Paul right here could call out Caesar, could call out Rome, he doesn't. He goes after the systems. He's giving us the big picture view. Brothers and sisters, if we follow Jesus, we cannot be guilty of assuming that our job is to snuff out evil in this world once and for all by going on a frontal assault. The enemy is defeated, not destroyed, but it is King Jesus who will do the destruction, not us. Paul writes in this passage, our job is to resist evil and that somehow by resisting what seems so normal and acceptable in this world, we will set ourselves apart, become distinctly different, become a light, become a hope to the nations in the world and people will want to know what we have. Paul is not instructing us here, you need to name the specific politician that you think is evil and then rally up a whole bunch of other Christians to go after them and slander their name. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying here, hey, that store created a new corporate policy that ruffles your feathers as a Christian, so you should probably rally a whole bunch of Christians and, and get after them and spread the news and wage war on that store. No, you don't need to do that. Paul is not saying here, oh man, they didn't include the... Christmas design on the coffee cup that you like, and so we should probably call it evil and wage war against this coffee shop. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, name the systems of evil that exist in this world and resist them. Don't name specific individuals and assume that because it's your opinion, that makes them evil. So Matt, what are these systems you're talking about? What, like, how do we name it? without getting so specific. Let me, let me give you an idea of what I think he's getting at. Here are the systems, just some, this is not exhaustive, but just some. I think injustice, oppression, abuse, racism, poverty, idolatry, addiction, hatred, sexual exploitation, trafficking of humans, lies, division. All of these things are systems in which evil flourishes. And for some reason, cultures and humanity has kind of come along and be like, yeah, I guess that's acceptable. They're normal. Those are the systems that are evil and we should name. Paul is not saying, think of the person's name, the politician, the store, your friend, 
your in-law and name them and wage war. That is not what he's saying. Name systems of evil in this world and resist them. How do we resist them? Paul doesn't want us to be passive and fearful. We've already been given a victory. He also doesn't want us to be aggressive and wage war. How do we resist them? We stand firm. In the armor of God, he's about to mention, there is no mention of anything on the back. In Paul's mind, we're never supposed to retreat. Or we're not supposed to advance. We stand. Somehow we find our footing in this corrupt world. We stand against the cosmic powers through the power of Jesus. How do we resist? We put on the armor. Paul says, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Six characteristics, Paul says, should be descriptive of Christians, of those who believe in Jesus. Truth, knowing truth from falsehood, righteousness, a way of living that honors God, peace. You know that right now, statistically, more people struggle with worry and anxiety more than ever before, ever. Paul says peace should be a marker of the Christian. Jesus says in John chapter 14, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, not as the world gives peace, but it's a different peace. Jesus says, I'm sending the helper. For those in the new covenants, for those who believe in Jesus today, peace is not a what, but a who. He's the spirit. The scriptures say he's been given to us, filled us up, and we've been sealed in him. Therefore, we have permanent abiding peace in the midst of this evil world. It doesn't mean you won't ever have concerns or worries, but we have peace. He's a person, not a thing. Faith extinguishes the, the attacks of the evil one. The helmet of salvation, which, which means to claim the victory already in Jesus and God's word. How often do we pour ourselves over God's word, hide God's word in our hearts so that we may not sin against him, memorize God's word so that we have a weapon against evil, against the systems of evil, against the darkness, against the world grabbers, the cosmic powers. Paul goes on to say, pray. Praying at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And also pray for me. Paul was not too proud to ask for prayer. Pray for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer seems to be, in Paul's mind, the access by which we're, we're, we're getting the resources of heaven and a metric. I think, I think for us today, the degree to which we believe this battle is real will be seen in the frequency of how often we are on our knees praying for each other. If you don't think there's a spiritual battle, if you don't think th these realms are actually happening, if you don't think cosmic powers are influencing the world, if you don't think that we can combat that with prayer, then you won't find yourself praying often. But Paul says, pray at all times in the spirit. Under his authority, through his assistance, pray at all times in the spirit. There is a battle. Pray for each other. Pray for me. And then he closes the letter. He says, so that you may also know how I am doing and what I am doing, Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. 
Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. That's how Paul closes his letter to the Ephesians. I want us to close by going to chapter one. Chapter one, starting in verse 19. I have it up on the screens for you as well. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That's the might that we stand in. Remember Ephesians 6, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We're standing in the strength of Jesus. The strength of his might. That he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul begins Ephesians and ends Ephesians, I think, in a very similar way. Paul begins Ephesians by reminding us who we are in Jesus and using this beautiful language. Look at Jesus, look at what God has done. He's above all, he is the king of all. Jesus is above every name. He has power over every power. He's king over every realm in this age and the next age. It is Jesus who is king. And then he closes the letter by saying this. Now stand firm because there is a realm and that realm is dark and that realm is influencing us. But don't forget, don't forget Jesus is king. It's like, it's like these are the bookends. These are the thoughts he wants us to leave with. Because we could read Ephesians 6 and be like, I'm terrified. There's evil everywhere. There's demons everywhere. We don't even see them. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't be terrified. They're already defeated. They're just not destroyed. The victory's already yours. The helmet of salvation is yours. Jesus is king. In these last days, resist evil. Remembering that Jesus is king in this realm and the next realm, in this world and the other world. His name is above every name. There is no need to fear. There's also no need to wage war. We surrender to the ways of Jesus, submissive servant, unorthodox pathways to victory. We claim the victory. We inhabit the victory that is already ours in Jesus. He's the king of the world. He's the king of the United States of America. He's the king of this age and the next. That is how Paul wants us to end the journey through Ephesians. Reminding us there's a realm, but also reminding us that Jesus has conquered evil in this world. And those who follow him inhabit his victory by resisting evil. Ephesians can be summed up like this. Ephesians is ultimately about the triumph of Jesus over the dark powers of this world and how his people, through the power of his spirit, share in that victory through our identity in him and resistance of evil. That is the bottom line of Ephesians. May Jesus be king in our lives. May that be evident through our resistance of evil. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the book of Ephesians. What a journey it's been to go through this book verse by verse together as a family of believers. Jesus, I pray that you would maintain the spirit of unity in this body, that we would love one another and serve one another and come together 
and repair broken relationships. For Paul says that is spiritual warfare. That we would ask for forgiveness, that we would seek to reconcile division. That we would realize that there is a realm we cannot see, a realm that influences our world, and that we would resist evil by standing firm in truth, in faith, salvation, the word of God, righteousness. Father, I pray that, I pray that uh, Jesus would come soon. That evil would be vanquished once and for all. But while we wait, Jesus, we thank you so much for the victory and the triumph that we share in because of what you've done. We love you, Jesus. We pray that your word would, would saturate deeply into our hearts. We ask these things in your name. Amen.